Hi, everybody, and welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What I mean by that is that we're going to take a look at each episode of Star Trek in chronological order. At this point, we're still early days. We're in Enterprise Season 1. And we're also going to be taking a look at how things were in the world when the episode dropped. So we'll be taking a dive into some of the news, things like movies, TV shows, and songs that were popular. And we're going to be taking a look at the era of the broadcast, along with a deeper dive into a subject that comes up during the episode. You're probably wondering, who the heck is doing all this talking? Well, it's me. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some stuff that has some sci-fi in it. I also write picture books. With me is my brother, Matthew Farrell. He's the tech guy and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. So between the two of us, we have a lot of the issues of Star Trek covered from storytelling to tech and also a deep and lifelong love of Star Trek. Please don't forget, you can directly support the podcast. You can go to pod.fan slash trek dash in dash time which is easier to type than it is to say. <laughs> Please trust me on that. And if you go there, you'll th- be able to throw some coins into the fountain. We also just appreciate anybody listening and commenting and sharing with their friends. All of that really does help. So Matt, I talked right through the opening about you existing, and yet I didn't invite you to actually prove that you exist. <laughs> so you want to say hello at this point? Sure. Hello, everybody. Yeah. And I understand you have some things to share from the last episode. Yes, we got some fun feedback uh, from Pale Ghost 69 He commented earlier. We actually talked about him last episode, too. Uh, from the episode Civilization, he said, they literally had a phaser fight in the middle of a town square, quoting us, and then holding up sticks in their hands that would shoot fire bolts and lightning that blew things up. And then he made the comment, it makes you wonder about the old tales of wizards with magic wands and staves which I thought was a really kind of fun take of it does yeah. kind of make you wonder where does like, mythology come from? If not possibly right. from, yeah, exactly. And then Roger Ramjet on the same episode commented, well, the Farrell brothers are Trek fans, new level of respect as a hardcore fan. Doesn't it just want, doesn't it just want to make you wish the tech was the real deal? Sad how enterprise gets a bad rap. I thought the acting was solid. And there was two points on that. I kind of wanted to point out. It's like, I actually do think, the tech is becoming real. And the reason I say that is like right here in front of me, I've got this thing called an iPad, which is literally the thing that Picard was always holding in his ready room <laughs> next generation. <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. this tech Turns out is he was just slowly... reading a Kindle that all those years we're like, Oh, it's some future tech. And he's just going Amazon prime. Yeah, exactly. And I have a Apple watch on, which is, you know, can read my heart rate and all that kind of stuff. It's not tricorder level stuff yet, but it's like, we're, we're slowly edging closer and closer to some of this this stuff becoming a reality. Absolutely. Um, and we can also 3D print food. So we're getting close to replicators. So <laughs> it's, it's slowly coming out. And the other side of it, of his comment that I liked was he thinks the show gets a bad rap and the acting's very solid. It's like, that's one of the reasons I love this show. I think Enterprise itself is horribly underrated in the whole Star Trek universe. It's kind of like the, nobody thinks about it or watched it, which is part of the reason it didn't last very long. But it's it's really underrated. It's really it's really a, a fun show. Yeah, and it it struggled with um, I think some exhaustion at the time, and it struggled mm-hmm. also with what its messaging was at the time that the episodes aired, and that's 
pretty much the entire reason for doing this podcast is we're taking a look at things like, okay, what is the message of the show? And this is enterprise talking about a future where humanity has put its differences aside and has learned to work collectively to be able to step out into the community of space. And meanwhile, these episodes were airing in the fall after 9-11. The world was hearing a drumbeat that was heading toward war and ongoing issues with the Middle East that have plagued us for the last 20 years. So the reality didn't meet what was going on in the show. And I think that there was a little bit of a, of a pushback from an audience that was seeing terrible headlines and a show that was promoting the idea of a rosier future just didn't seem to fit. So Mm -hmm. on to this week's episode, we're talking about episode 11 and this is the episode cold front. It was directed by Robert Duncan McNeil. Listeners may remember that he was Tom Paris from Voyager. And I'll be talking about him in more detail toward the end of the episode. This episode was written by Stephen Beck and Tim Finch. And a nice little side note about Stephen Beck is he's a successful artist who has work that has appeared in museums around the world, including the Museum of Modern Art and the Whitney here in New York City and the San Francisco Museum of Art. This episode aired on November 28th, 2001, and was viewed by 7.3 million people. This is up from the previous episode, which, as we talked about last week, struggled with airing the night before Thanksgiving. So that blip in the viewership, that drop, uh, the following week, this episode, not only is this up from the previous week, it's actually up from the week before that. So I thought it was a nice little bump that, Maybe for the people making the show forecast that maybe they were getting a little bit of traction. But what was the world like when this aired? Well, we know that Thanksgiving had just happened. So people were fat with turkey and mashed potatoes. (laughs) But they were also listening to something new, Matt. They were not listening to Jennifer Lopez anymore. What? That's right. They were listening to Family Affair by Mary J. Blige. This is another in what has been an ongoing saga in this podcast of songs Sean does not remember. (laughs) the movie that was topping the box office well as i mentioned last week it was a tiny little do nothing film called harry potter and the sorcerer's stone and it only managed to rake in 57 million this week which added to the millions that it made the week before and here's one that just makes you scratch your head the number one show on television, the week this episode aired was the Carol Burnett show, Showstoppers. What 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 decade what what decade are we in? <laughs> I was Carol Burnett on. Well, I think you time? might remember the gist of this episode was about a temporal cold war. I think this might be an issue with some time travel from the seventies. I here's two. Uh, mind-blowing details about this. The Carol Burnett Show, Showstoppers, was viewed, and astute listeners will remember that just mere moments ago, I mentioned that 7.3 million people watched this episode of Star Trek. Carol Burnett, Showstoppers, which was a compilation show of taking bloopers from the Carol Burnett Show and pasting them all together, and airing them 
was watched by 29.8 million people. <laughs> oh my God. So we're talking about four times as many people watching reruns, reruns, decades yes. old reruns of the Carol Burnett show. Now, mind blowing point number two. I remember watching this. Yeah, I, I think I watched it too. <laughs> I think I watched it too. Yeah. Matt and I, as children of the 70s, yes. grew up watching reruns of The Carol Burnett Show, which nothing that I've said was in any way intended to throw any mud in Carol Burnett's direction. She's a genius. The show was genius. You got to grab your ear, People Sean. should, yes, grab in my ear. <laughs> People should watch it. Uh, there's tons of stuff on YouTube if you look for it. It's a lot of fun, but it just kind of blows my mind <laughs> to think that when this episode aired, they were happy to get $7 million. Meanwhile, Carol Burnett, a show that hadn't been on the air for 25 years at that point, rakes in almost $30 million. And in the news, as I mentioned earlier, this is the continuing drumbeat to war in Afghanistan. And at this point, the U.S. was bombing Afghanistan in an attempt to unseat the Taliban. Also in the news in the New York Times was Attorney General Ashcroft revealed the names of 93 detainees out of a total of 641. These were people who had been rounded up, believed to be in connection with 9-11 and terror at large. And at that point, the U.S. was rounding people up very quickly and in large numbers. And this, of course, precedes the use of Guantanamo to hold them as effectively in a military prison outside U.S. jurisdiction. Not all of the 641 would be held permanently. Not all of the 93 that were named would be held permanently. But it is a sign of what at that time was an unprecedented response to the attacks of 9-11. There was also a headline about the AIDS crisis in Africa, which at that point was just beginning to get some of the types of attention that it needed to get as that disease was running rampant in certain countries in Africa. So Matt, on to this week's episode. As we mentioned, it is titled Cold Front, and it is an overdue return to something yes. that they... The <laughs> only other time they one. talked about this was in the pilot. So yes. Matt, you want to take us through a synopsis of what so, this episode is about? Yeah. Half a season in. The episode reveals more about the temporal Cold War story arc. First are introduced in Broken Bow. Captain Archer is confronted by a member of his crew who claims to be from 900 years into the future and is there to capture a Suliban operative who has boarded the Enterprise. So here we are on September 12th, 2151. And Matt, we've made a big uh, push in this podcast talking about how we are going to watch Star Trek in chronological order. Mm-hmm. And sadly, the next episode <laughs> apparently in the timeline takes place prior to this episode. What? Yes, the broadcast order does not match the chronological order of the episodes apparently. And I think it's pretty easy to see why the airing dates after this episode jump forward to post-holidays. Mm -hmm. This would be the final episode that they were airing as part of their fall. And after New Year's, when they would return for the spring, 
that's when the next episodes are available. So it seems to me pretty obvious that what they did was say, okay, we've bookended the first part of the season without knowing exactly what the air dates would be. They've bookended it with the idea of opening with the temporal cold war and then ending the fall with the temporal cold war. And they had to juggle a couple of the episodes in order to have them broadcast in a way that worked for them. So they aired this one instead of the other episode. So here we are in 2151 on September 12th and the enterprise is on its way to investigate a stellar nursery with the emergence of, of, effectively new stars growing in in this cluster of of stars and they end up running into a ship and hailing the ship they have a conversation with the captain who reveals that he is taking pilgrims to see the great plume of agasoria and this is a religious event that takes place every 11 years because one of the protostars emits a neutron blast that the pilgrims consider a sacred event. The introduction of something like pilgrims and this kind of event is, I think, a neat one in Enterprise at this point. They have typically only come across people with whom they either are going to have to solve a problem for them Mm -hmm. or they are going to be confronted by them in some fashion. And this is really the first time that they've come across somebody who not only is this group not the cause of the conflict with any of the plot, the captain really doesn't seem all that interested in meeting anybody from Earth and this starship of excited humans who are going off into space for the first time. What were your thoughts about the captain of the, of this uh, ship? (laughs) I loved how blase he was like, I don't care about this. He's basically like, I'm just getting a paycheck. I'm just dragging these guys out here to see this thing. And I want to go back home. He doesn't care about anything. I just loved, I loved how, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you want me to come on board your ship? Okay, fine. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I loved that, that betrayal of the character, which is really fun to have a, just this, meh, kind of character yeah so captain archer reaches out to the pilgrims and invites them to visit enterprise and they have a one of my favorite scenes in um the episode is trip's tour of the engineering Mm -hmm. section which yeah uh he is effectively bragging about the advanced technology of this warp engine that allows them to go at warp five without overtaxing it. And he's talking about all the exciting energies and, the, and he's talking very much as if he's talking to a group of children. And yes, when one of these people asks a question, which is very pointed. And when trip reveals his surprise at the question, the guy's response is, well, I'm a warp core theorist. So <laughs> this is the sort of person who would actually design the engines that trip is bragging about and trip is put back in his place. But it's at this moment in the episode when one of these pilgrims separates and it turns out that this is in fact not a pilgrim this is one of the Sulaban, one of the people involved in the temporal cold war he separates himself from the pilgrims and disconnects something in one of the junctions of the engine and of course it's done using the old 
melty, twisty arm that the Suliban are so excited to have that allows him to get his arm into a location that people normally would not be able to reach and unplug something. So there's a bit of sabotage going on, but we don't know yet what it is. I also wanted to ask your thoughts in connection to that, the whole tour, the whole taking him through the engineering section. What did you think about the conversation that took place on the bridge between Reed, Mayweather, and Sato? Because I think it connects directly to that. Uh, refresh me, refresh my mind on what they were talking about. On the bridge, Mayweather, Reed, and Sato are engaged in a conversation about the fact that oh, pilgrims yes. are on board the ship. And yes. Mayweather is very excited about the fact <laughs> that they have people on board and they get in the full tour. And yes. Reed's response is not we need so to have positive. positive. Yeah, no, he's he's talking about like we this, they shouldn't have full access to the ship. We should have policies around this. We should have procedures around this. It's another one of those great moments of Reed dropping these comments as a security officer of saying this is screwed up. We shouldn't be doing this. And it's all the stuff that we're used to in future Trek where you this wouldn't be happening because there are procedures in place. And I love the fact that they're feeling this out as they're going forward and Reed is the guy that's the first one kind of raising his hand going, uh, this isn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. I really like the idea that at some point in the future, Mr. Worf is totally savvy with security procedures that Reed will have written. Yes, exactly. It seems very clear that they're setting up the fact that Reed as this person is out there saying like making notes, like restrict access. And then meanwhile, down in the engineering section, Trip is showing them literally the heart of the ship in a way that it doesn't make sense that he would be touring people through that part of the ship in that way, that people would be able to slip out and do what the Suliban does, which is sabotage something. Yep. Well, there was, there was also another conversation during the opening scenes where it was they had the guests on, in, in the ship and they were having that little reception and Captain Archer was talking to them. And they were having little drinks and he was asked, I, I, one, of the thing, one of the things I loved about this was I love S Scott Bakula's portrayal of Archer because he's always comes across as like a guy who's got a rod up his ass. <laughs> he's mm. always like so, so prim and proper, but you can see how he ramps that up and down based on the situation. So yeah. you understand that his relaxed looks uptight to me. But then when yeah. he is uptight, he's like super uptight and super proper. And I loved his portrayal when he was asked. Um, what faith he follows because yeah. they were he was asking questions about their faith and they said well what faith do you follow and I loved how without missing a beat he came back with the most diplomatic answer of I guess you could say I keep keep an open mind and it was just like such a wonderful kind of deflection of I don't have faith the way you would describe it but I right. keep an open mind to understand that other people have different views and I thought it was such a wonderful little diplomatic scene of like you can start to see the seeds of what makes Archer a great captain and what's going to mm. make him a kind of a linchpin for the future of right. Starfleet. It's, it's, I just like that little scene. I also think that they, in this episode in particular, do a nice job of playing Archer off of flocks again. The two of them, yes. even if they are not in scenes together or involved in storylines in a direct way, the balancing act of the show of saying Archer diplomatically, as you say, presents himself as saying like i keep an open mind his job though requires a sort of withdrawn mm -hmm. involvement meanwhile flocks <laughs> visits the pilgrim's ship 
is invested in a multi-hour religious ceremony, which he has zero experience with, but comes back from super energized, super excited. Yeah. And he also at the the scene of the dinner party reveals that he has gone when he was at Earth, he visited a number of different major religious experiences on Earth. So he's literally embodying the keeping an open mind that Archer presents diplomatically. Phlox is mm -hmm. the embodiment of that. He is yes. doing all of these things. And by the end of the episode, we will see a moment where Phlox is incorporated once again into a religious experience and is clearly emotionally moved by it in a way that indicates that for him, he does see through the trappings of, well, this culture does this and that culture does that. He sees through both those things to the same place, which is mm -hmm. the beauty of expression of faith. And mm -hmm. from a man of science as the doctor, I think it's a very interesting number. It's, it's sort of a splitting, a spinning plate that they've created in that character. It's balanced in many different directions at the same time. And he's one of the few characters that they seem, all of the writers seem to be easily, he seems to be the most easily written for in yes. that way, because yes. he's just constantly expressing a sense of wonder, a sense of certitude in his expertise, but also just a genuine love of experience. And yes. it's, it's really, uh, a, a really wonderful character in that sense. So the Enterprise goes deeper into the stellar nursery where the protostars are enmeshed in various clouds of plasma, plasma energy, and there is a plasma storm. And as they get deeper into it, the pilgrim's ship, the captain advises trying to fly around the storm as best as possible. He's ahead of the Enterprise, so he's able to get around it, but the Enterprise gets caught by it and they are struck by a bolt of energy and it causes an antimatter cascade in the engines and the cascade creates a series of explosions as it's heading back to the engine and it's stopped by the disconnected junction. So it turns out that Silic, the Suliban has not sabotaged the ship as much as he has saved the ship. Mm -hmm. So they end up looking at the junction. They don't suspect sabotage as really a first cause here they don't know what might have happened here that created this this thing that saved the ship until crewman daniels approaches archer and crewman daniels reveals something about himself that up to this point the show has done a masterful job of really planting a lot of little seeds getting us to this point what is it matt what is what does daniels reveal He's from 900 years in the future. <laughs> and this is dropped on us like an egg from a third floor window. This yes, comes out of nowhere and just <laughs> creates a giant splat that doesn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense. And this is one of my biggest frustrations with this series. Enterprise is not a show that wouldn't know what continuity storytelling would look like. Mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine has already done it and did it beautifully. Voyager did it even though they could have done it to the same level as Deep Space Nine, they didn't, but they still had it. Enterprise now is picking up a storyline from the pilot. And I 
am stymied by why why is Daniels showing up in this episode now out of nowhere with this kind of revelation instead of having been planted in other episodes with little moments of him. He's supposed to be serving Archer his meals. They could have had him as a recurring guy who (laughs) brings in the meals and just says little things without it being big so that this revelation would be, oh my God, I can't believe it. Yeah, it's like th- they have several dinner scenes with, you know, Trip and, you know, T'Pol in, in that room and their food's getting delivered. They could have had him in every one of those scenes. And, of course, he's overhearing parts of these conversations. And so he could have made little co- comments once every once in a while that could have been like hints or like kind of a comment that's meant to nudge the conversation in a certain direction. Like he's trying to manipulate them in some fashion without being overtly so. It's like they could have done a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, to kind of lay the groundwork for when he says I'm from 900 years in the future. But you're right. It's like the first time we see him is that near the beginning of the episode where uh, he says to Daniels, I can't remember who the re- regular crewman is. He goes, where's crewman so-and-so? Yeah. And he's like, oh, you took the morning off. And it's like, okay, we got a new character here. <laughs> so it's like, this clearly looked like it was like slapdash thrown together for this specific episode. And they hadn't pre-planned it at all. And it was, it's, it's disappointing. Because as you point out, they did continuity storytelling in several series before this so it's kind of almost inexcusable that they uh let the show go for this long before pulling something together yeah and it's like you mentioned they've had so many dinner scenes mm-hmm. it's almost like it was it was right there like how mm-hmm. difficult could it have been to have him even if in some of them he didn't say anything just having him on screen Mm-hmm. would lend this with so much impact of, oh, he's been at the captain's shoulder this entire time and the captain didn't know it. That mm-hmm. would have impact. It would also have impact if he had weighed in with any kind of side commentary as he's cleaning dishes, clearing dishes off the table and hearing these bits of conversation and saying things in passing without tipping his hand that he knows the future, but saying things about, well, my understanding of the Vulcans is that blah, blah, blah. It could have added interesting nuance to things Mm -hmm. that there could have been moments where it would have let the viewer know, because at this point, the viewer knows that there's this temporal cold war, this him revealing things that might've hinted at why does he seem to know more than he should could have been yeah. a way of letting the viewer know, oh, this guy's not just this thing. He's something yep. more. And they missed that opportunity. So it's very frustrating. I'm also frustrated by the mythology that he presents in that it's for somebody who is supposed to be 900 years from the future, he sure lets Archer and a bunch of other people, while saying, we need to keep this secret reveals all sorts of crazy details in a way that yes. within the Star Trek world, uh, you think about when the original series crew travels back in Star Trek four. One of the key things is everybody needs to make sure that they don't tip their hand about anything in the future. This, we can't affect the timeline. Mm-hmm. Daniel seems to be just, tripping all over the timeline yes, without any concern. And just from a storytelling perspective, I did not like that. The only, I, it's been a while since I've watched this to where, to to know where his storyline actually ends up. 
Um, but they could have, that could have been a deliberate choice. They could have made it a deliberate choice of, and have characters go make that comment of, he's telling us an awful lot of stuff that you think they would not want to tell us. Why is that? Yeah. So they, they could have made that a thing as well if they wanted to do that. But once again, they didn't, um, they just, it's, it felt kind of thrown together and not completely thought through. So Daniel's tells Archer that he's not from Starfleet, but he's from the 31st century and he's part of a group that is working against the interests of Silic and the Suliban who are being manipulated by somebody behind the scenes that the temporal cold war sometimes has flashpoints. And this is one of those flashpoints. He is there ostensibly to capture Silic and wishes to use the Enterprise's internal sensors mixed with something that he has that will allow him to identify the Suliban. And while working on that, they are putting that together in engineering. And meanwhile, Silic approaches Archer and claims that Daniel's group is responsible for the antimatter cascade that almost destroyed the ship, reveals that he in fact saved the ship, and that the what is called the temporal accord that Daniels talked about, Silica claims it's a lie. So there's a he said, she said situation going on with the time travel, which does make sense as a storytelling device, setting up the idea that Silic would be making claims about the other side does make sense. But I have a hard time when from the very beginning, just like Archer, Silic has already tried to kill Archer. Yep. It becomes very yep. tricky uh, to, to believe somebody who has tried to kill a main character. It, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around the idea that they might not be the villain that everybody says they are. It made me wish that there might have been a little bit more of a gray area in the pilot. Yeah. Around the motivations of Silic and what he was actively trying to do. And it could have been something as simple as in one moment, Silic revealing something about having protected Archer in some way or chosen not to try to kill him in a certain moment about some, some minor issue that now would be reflected. Yep. It could have added to the tension of the scene if he reminded Archer in this moment of, don't forget I was the one who did that other thing for you as well. So in engineering, Daniels has worked with his future tech to do things like walk through walls. And which, again, <laughs> was another element of, well, you talk about don't really don't revealing everything. <laughs> uh, he yeah. walks through walls, he fixes something in a bulkhead that nobody would be able to reach. And they're getting the device that Daniels has brought tied up to the ship so that they can actually find Silic when, as if that entire thing was just a MacGuffin, dare I say it, Silic suddenly shows up and then effectively we watch him kill Daniels. Or did he? Yes, or did he? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I did like the fact that Daniels death scene was not um it wasn't just a phase out like burning up yeah. it was a whole kind of shattering of yeah. his image into he became sort of static in a weird way with a lot of two-dimensional planes on him and then broke into pieces 
And I thought that that was an effective and very different way of depicting the attack um, from Silic's weapon. So Archer then asks Tucker to use the sensors to find Silic, and he and T'Pol visit Daniels's quarters, and he pulls out the database that he he's going for the database that Daniels was using, but it's now gone. It's obviously in Silic's possession. So then begins a chase of locking down the ship while Silic is trying to find his way to a shuttle bay or some other way to get off the ship. And Archer is in the lead of the chase. What did you think about how this chase was depicted and how and how it turned out? I there's I kind of liked it, the elements of it, of how the Sulaban have been altered and have been given an edge with technology they shouldn't have to be able to do what they're doing, like the whole bendy thing that they keeps doing to go into areas of the ship that no people can't follow him. And I like the fact that then Archer is using technology from the future that he shouldn't have a hold of to kind of catch up to him and keep on top of him. And I did like the cat and mouse of how Silic, you know, normally would have been like three steps ahead because of his advantage. He wasn't that far ahead. He was half a step ahead and Archer kept showing up right after him and, and kind of styming everything he was trying to do. I, I liked that aspect of it. I didn't want to think too hard about the technology that he was using to do it because it made no sense. Um, why wouldn't you fall through the ship if you can phase through surfaces? Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to think too hard. But my favorite moment of that yeah. was he puts the device on, puts his hand through a wall and then turns and takes something from Reed. Yes. That's what I mean. It's like, it's like, okay, I don't want to think too hard about what this, how this tech actually works. It's clearly so far in the future. It's basically magic to me. I'm just going to disconnect my brain and go with it. But I did like the cat and mouse aspect of the, of the, the, the journey. The one thing that drove me nuts, and this happens so much in so many shows, not just Star Trek, not this episode, is he gets, he corners Silicon in this little room. He's got his phaser. Yeah. just shoot, shoot the guy shoot him shoot just, him you've got a you've got a stun on the thing you're not going to kill him just stun him right there but no he decides to have a conversation with the guys so that they can have a fight and then he can lose the phaser and then still can get away again it's like come on it's like in a horror movie where it's like don't go in the basement don't go in the basement. why are you going in the basement nobody with a in the right head would go in the basement what you're doing right. it's like that's what happens in these scenes when people like show up with their gun and they can stun them but they don't it's like it makes no sense you would stun him in a heartbeat and call it a day it, it just made no sense but there were aspects of the fight i liked of, of there the were aspects of the chase that i liked i liked the tension of of he's loosened the ship he's going through places that other crew members are yeah. not going to be able to do archer is the only one who can keep up with him so that you do end up with the one-on-one fights that that occur uh i I did like the aspect of him getting into the shuttle bay and depressurizing the shuttle bay. And again, the Suleban's abilities to, <laughs> to alter things, including like being able to, to survive in the vacuum of space. But there is a ridiculous moment where the, you were going to say something about the, uh, <laughs> as Matt devolves say- into, into turtles. <laughs> the, I have a note. I forgot. I wrote this down. It was like, how much air is in that very tiny bay when decompression happens like that and the air rushes out, it doesn't keep rushing out. It's like it evacuates and then it's gone. And so he's in a vacuum, but yet him holding on to that railing 
the scene, it felt like he was holding on for like 30 seconds. And it's like, how much air is in this stupid <laughs> bay? It's like, it would be all gone at this point. Yeah. And he clearly can't breathe. So there's no air. So where's the air rushing from? And it was only that way so that he would drop the freaking future tech because they, of course, have to yeah. get that future tech out of their hands or it can affect the the timeline of the whole Star Trek universe. So they have to get that out of his hands. And it was just so it was so contrived and stupid. It could have just been a quick evacuation of the air. He quickly drops the thing and then it just then you're just in a vacuum and it's him just trying to get into a place where he can breathe again. But yeah. the rushing air was the part that just made me go, what, what is happening? Do people not understand how this stuff works? <laughs> yeah. And for me, uh, he shoots, he shoots the device that Silic is trying to steal out of Silic's yes. hands. Yes. So he's destroying that. He destroys yeah. that effectively. And then he drops the thing out the shuttle bay doors. Again, as you mentioned, all the future tech has to get out of the crew's hands otherwise what yep. will that all do to the future of star trek but for me everything you just mentioned makes complete sense yes it would be like a balloon deflating it would not be like a slow leak it would be when the shuttle bay doors open up they are large enough that they sh- it, it would should be out. a larger vacuum rushing out in one big gulp and the impact on Archer would have looked very similar, but it, it, the rushing wind effect should have stopped. It, it wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. have mattered if he still was like dangling from the, from the edge of the catwalk. He still would have had to get up. It did for me, though, this is the part that I was scratching my head. How does Silic jump out of mm-hmm. a shuttle bay door? Because there would be no gravity below the open door. But this is where it's like, don't don't think too hard about how the, don't the gravity plates work on the ship because, of course, there's gravity there or else he couldn't do that. So it's yeah. like, yeah, don't think too hard. If we did have something like a gravity plate, if you opened up a shuttle bay door and you jumped off of the gravity, pl- gravity plate above, you know, in an attempt to jump out of an open shuttle bay door, you would Good just point. hang in space above <laughs> the open door. <laughs> To get out of the open door, I thought it would have been more interesting if he had done some Suleban-like crouch at the edge of the shuttle bay and pulled and himself. pushed him out. Yeah, arcing yeah. himself out the door, clearly in an attempt to give himself propulsion because not only does he jump out of the ship, he then falls. Mm-hmm. And how are we falling in space when he's not anywhere near something that should be pulling him in any way, but he is falling. And here's the third thing about this that I love so much. Not only is he falling, he is angling his body like a skydiver in order to direct himself toward the Suluban ship that is waiting for him. There is a Suluban shuttlecraft that is opening its doors. It is from a dramatic storytelling standpoint. It is a nice moment. He gets mm-hmm. out, he gets to the shuttle. You can see him heading toward that shuttlecraft. You know he's going to get away. There's the tension of all of that. But it is deflated by some of these elements of, okay, the air evacuating the shuttle bay would not do what it's doing in the show. He would not be able to jump up and then fall through an open shuttle bay door. He would not fall in space and he would not be able to use his body to effectively glide toward the mm-hmm. waiting shuttlecraft. 
But we'll put that all to the side, and I will say that I did like how Archer had to get as quickly as possible off the catwalk into a control room of the shuttle bay to lock himself in and effectively repressurize that room. And then he is very realistically gasping for breath. I thought that that mm-hmm. was a nice touch, that he in that moment is just happy to be alive. And when they say, when, when they say oh, the shuttlecraft that picked up Silic is getting away, should we give chase? He's just basically like, no, <laughs> no, I'm exhausted. We're done. Yeah. Yeah. So we are left with Silic having gotten away. None of the future tech is in his hands and Daniels is apparently dead. So things are effectively a wash. Meanwhile, the religious experience that the pilgrims had hoped to see has taken place. And as we mentioned before, Phlox is there with him. And they have invited him to be a part of their prayer around this ceremony. And I thought that that was all very, I thought that was all a very lovely um, bit of coloring in the background of a side storyline that was really not very tightly woven in with the main storyline, but it had a lot of very nice moments that I thought were very effective. Mm -hmm. I agree. And then finally, at the very end, there's the discussion around what does this all mean for the future of the Enterprise? And Archer has asked Lieutenant Reed to seal off Daniels' cabin. And I thought this was probably one of the most effective moments in the show. It's a very Raiders of the Lost Ark-like ending where they have put a giant magnetic lock onto the door. They've reassigned Daniels' roommate to some other cabin on the ship and they've put this giant lock on the door and the camera simply swings around to look directly at the door while menacing music plays and i thought that that was actually a very yeah that was a very impressive ending for a storyline that the way it handled daniels and the revelations and what's going on i wasn't so crazy about a lot of those elements and effectively it was just kind of a cat and mouse episode so it wasn't a whole lot of intriguing revelations happening Mm-hmm. But this moment of hinting toward a future storyline and more revelations around this, I thought was effective. The only thing I didn't like was the explanation of putting the lock on the door was we don't know what the hell's in there. So just lock it. Um, it set up that ominous point, which I agree was a great ending. But at the same time, it's kind of like he could have had said something to T'Pol of you and I are going to have to go in there at some point and take a very close look it's like yeah. he didn't it made it look like well our job's done we're gonna lock that and just pretend nothing's in there it was yeah. like there was no c- comment about we'll look into that more thoroughly later or anything like that it was just like yeah. i'm just gonna lock it and forget about it which i didn't like that that felt a little weird yeah i agree and it and it could have been i mean not to pun too hard but it could have been some sort of reference of we'll do that when we have the time i mean it could have been like there could have been a loaded moment for archer and to paul where it could have been like that's going to take more attention than we have right now and exactly and given it, the weight it was given was one of fear and locking it away as opposed to fear and locking it away but knowing we're going to have to break that lock open at some point i agree with you that it, it exactly. could have had uh, a tighter connection to future action on their part instead of them just waiting for somebody once again to show up at the door so far with the, with all the temporal war stuff it has been entirely outside forces coming in and bringing the enterprise into the action 
as opposed to them in any way, shape or form being proactive. And at this point in the series, that is largely what has been happening. They have been reluctantly the protagonists in many of the episodes. And when they have been, they've really mucked it up. Like I'm thinking about the episode where they decided to go camping and yep. that entire storyline with the the pollen that creates the hallucinogenic effect. We need to see them proactively doing more stuff. We need to see them stepping forward and saying, we are actively doing this thing and we are then causing the storyline, the plot to leap off as opposed to just being reactive. Because for me, that's one of the underlying elements of the sort of staid storytelling in the episodes so far. It's they're so reactive. They are so mm-hmm. hesitantly moving forward into space that they're not, they don't seem to be doing anything there. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for in the next few episodes as we move forward. So one of the things that stood out for me in this episode that I wanted to look at cl- more closely is the director, Robert Duncan McNeil. And as soon as I saw the name pop up on the screen, I was happy to see it. And, and I thought, oh, it's, it's great that he's another of the long lineage of modern Trek actors who moved into a director's chair. But I didn't realize quite how extensive his directorial work had gone. And little background on McNeil. He grew up in North Carolina. He went to acting school at Juilliard in New York City. And he's been working in movies and television since 1981. And that started, of course, Matt, you'll remember this role. He was the teen on bus in Sharky's Machine. That classic Burt Reynolds film from 1981. No, I don't remember that either. I've never seen it. But anyway, he, of course, broke into Star Trek in 1992 in and. I feel like I say this phrase in almost every episode of this podcast, arguably one of the best episodes of The Next Generation, The First Duty, where he played the character of Nick Locarno. Right. And of course, that yep. episode focused on Nick Locarno is the elder student leading a team of cadets who are going to do some stunt flying ahead of graduation and he has convinced his team to do a prohibited maneuver. And while practicing that maneuver, one of the cadets is killed and one of the other cadets is Wesley Crusher. And the point of the episode is these cadets wrestling with keeping this thing a secret and Picard and other members of the crew looking at details and beginning to question how could their story actually make sense. And it's the uncovering of that that leads to Nick Locarno's being expelled. And Nick Locarno was at one point considered to be the template for the character of Tom Paris, so much so that he, of course, ended up playing Tom Paris. And I believe there was a moment where there was some thought that Nick Locarno might actually be that character. I think it would have been an interesting choice. It would have added a little more depth, I think, to Tom Paris's character, who at a certain point just became just became kind of a, a guy on the bridge as opposed to yeah. having a lot of stuff to wrestle with. But I think that McNeil did a good job with Tom Paris. But of course, he also stepped into directing. And this is where it got interesting for me. He has directed 
a good number of television series, including Dawson's Creek, Everwood, Enterprise, of course, Dead Like Me, The O.C., One Tree Hill, and Supernatural. And he worked on Supernatural for a good number of years. He is also the executive producer and director behind the show Chuck and has more recently worked on shows like The Orville, The Gifted, and Resident Alien. And I know, Matt, you're a fan of two of those, and I'm a fan of the third. So without knowing it, we have been watching his work. Right now, he has a show which has literally just recently gone on the air on Disney+. Plus. It is a effectively a sequel <laughs> to the movie Turner and Hooch, which, all right, uh, yeah. the Tom Hanks vehicle with Tom Hanks playing a man who, a uh, cop who's reluctantly given a dog, and the two of them end up becoming partners and best friends. Even as I say that, I can't believe I'm saying that (laughs) charming Tom Hanks movie with Tom Hanks in an era where him reacting to dog drool was all you wanted to see on the big screen. And now it's on the small screen on Disney Plus as they have effectively picked up where the movie left off. It only took them, what, 38 years or something like that to to (laughs) finally give us the answers to the questions that the movie left hanging uh, but he is one of the, there are, I think, five producers on the show. He's one of them, and he has apparently directed as well. So he has um, continued in to make great strides, and I think it's it's quite an impressive directorial history. Were you aware of his? Yeah, I agree. Were you aware of his body no, of work? not at all. No, I wasn't, because it's like I never, he's always been Tom Paris to me. Yeah. And I've never really thought about him under Robert Duncan McNeil. So I've seen his name in the credits, but it never, I never put the two pieces together. And right. so when you put this in the the deeper dive, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I had no yeah. idea. And just real briefly, I know that you've watched both these shows. I, I feel like you would recommend both the Orville and Resident Alien as with, without hesitation. Like the Orville is the best Star Trek show on TV today. It, it's it's the most if you enjoy star trek from next generation era star trek that style of storytelling that's what the orville is and as yes, opposed it's a to comedy. what discovery yeah. is doing you mean correct discovery has like evolved into a new it's almost like the star trek motion picture the new newest star trek stuff the jj abrams stuff it's more yeah. action and the orville is, there's a lot of talking there's a lot of discussion about the you know the quandary of certain ethics around certain things it's very next generation but also very funny because it's 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 very well done um in it's in part of the reason it's also very star trek is i think it's rick berman works on it and mm-hmm. there's several people on the show main characters are actors from star trek so it's like the star trek dna that goes through that show is very strong and then Resident Alien, which is on the Sci-Fi Network here in the U.S., is a very, very funny show. It's it's wonderful. It's such a fun storyline of an alien that crash landed on the planet, and he was coming here to basically kill us all. And but he lost his device that's going to allow him to kill us all, and he's kind of in hiding and can make himself look like a human. And so here he is trying to blend in with the humans, even though he's trying to kill us all. And it's just this <laughs> awkward fish out of water storyline. Yeah. It's very, it is 
funny. It's like a dark comedy, but it is really, really funny. I, I, I love that show. Yeah, both of those sound really great, and I need to check them both out. So next time, we'll be talking about the episode Silent Enemy. Matt, do you have a prediction about what that episode will be about? I think it's going to be about an enemy that's really quiet. We'll see. We'll see if you're right. <laughs> Quick reminder, you can support the podcast directly by visiting pod.fan slash trek-in-time. And of course, you can... Also support us just by listening and sharing us with your friends, leaving reviews and comments. As for comments, I have a closing question for everybody. What would you have liked to have seen in this episode from the Sulaban? It felt to me like they as a race were not developed really much in any way. It's just they're thrown in as the big bad. What would you have liked to have seen that you didn't get to see here? And Matt, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to remind our listeners about that you have coming up? Uh, just stay tuned on to uh, Undecided with Matt Farrell on YouTube. I have some really interesting topics coming up, a review uh, coming up on the Span Smart Electric Panel that is kind of upgraded my Tesla Powerwall in a really interesting, fun way. Um, a lot of good content coming. As for me, you can check out my website. It's at seanfarrell.com. You can also search for my books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any non-mega bookstore you might choose. Go into your local shop and ask for my books, and believe it or not, they'll be able to find them. If anybody has any comments or corrections, please do reach out. We love it when people point out that that's not a phaser bank. That's a dilithium crystal. <laughs> you idiots. You can find the contact information in the podcast notes, or if you're watching this on YouTube, just go directly to the comments below the video. Please do remember to subscribe to like the episode and to share it widely with friends and strangers. Remember, a stranger is just a friend you haven't met. And do come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.